This episode of the Rewilding Earth podcast brought to you by Stretch of Gales Creek in Forest Grove, Oregon. With banks so severely eroded that important fish habitat was being destroyed and a historic dance hall was poised to collapse into the creek, this creek needed help. Today, those banks are not only stable, but providing diverse aquatic and riparian habitat. This is all thanks to the foresight of the property owner and a restoration project implemented by Biohabitats in collaboration with Clean Water Services, the regional water utility. You'll hear lots more about what it takes to bring small and large-scale ecological restoration projects to life in this episode. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. There are different methods for recovering damaged or altered habitat to restore it to a wild state. There's passive rewilding, where we let the land or waterways fix themselves by allowing nearby native plants and animals to repopulate the area and work their magic over time. Then there's active restoration, where before we can let the place recover with a more hands-off approach, we need to remove significant barriers to recovery, such as dams. And that's where someone like Matt Kuzer comes in. Senior restoration ecologist and construction manager for Biohabitats, Matt has 24 years of experience leading design build teams in water resources management and habitat restorations. He's managed all phases of river, estuary, wetland, and riparian restoration and management projects with a focus on habitat restoration construction. Matt's been involved in over 150 restoration projects, including dam removal, channel realignment, estuary levee breaching, engineered log jams and riffles, and fish passage projects, including culvert replacements and water intake diversion and fish screening modifications. Matt is dedicated to the restoration of ecosystems via smart, efficient design solutions and innovative construction means and methods. He currently leads Biohabitat's self-performing construction services from Portland, Oregon. Well, first off, let's talk about this crazy title you have. It's it's not unusual to you or anybody at Biohabitats, but for other people, it might seem weird to see the words restoration ecologist and construction manager in a job title. You know, we have a pretty good knack at Biohabitats of, uh, you know, inventing some really interesting uh, job titles for, for team members. And um, I mean, I think my answer would be that... Um, you know, I, I have the ecological background, but I'm applying it to, you know, getting things done in the field. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm actively doing the um, nuts and bolts of the restoration work out in the field. How does someone with uh, your background arrive at this place? What turns you on about it? When I was in, in college back in the, the early 90s, you know, in the in environmental um, sciences program, you know, there was a lot of sort of like doomsday, you know, going on with, you know, the impacts that the, that the earth is facing. And then I learned that there was people that were out there doing restoration work. And I learned that um, that was a pathway that like we can um, physically go out there and fix and repair and restore the ecosystem one little bit at a time. So that kind of led me down this this path. What are some of the examples that you give people when 
they ask, you know, when is it time to call you in? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the things that I always remind myself about is all of the effort and in, in the financial like um, investment that people before us made in um, impacting these resources in a negative way. Um, it's going to take, you know, that much effort on the other end to restore and repair them. Um, so an example, you know, an easy example would be, you know, a dam removal where, you know, existing conditions, fish can't get by. And then, um, you know, you call us in and, and we take the dam out and now fish can get by. That's a very simple um, picture there. And but but I understand what you're saying with instead of just like leave things alone and let let nature restore itself over time. You know, I think that um, based on the current conditions, like we don't have a lot of time to wait. So there's a certain amount of urgency. And and that's based on, you know, in, in the Northwest where I am, the, the salmon and steelhead runs. And, you know, we just don't have the time to wait. And yeah. something like a dam in the middle of the river, it's been there for a long time. It's not really going anywhere. It's going to need a little help. <laughs> you know, a little, a little muscle to get it out of there. Yeah. We don't have 500 years to wait for it to collapse on its own in that case. Exactly. Yes. Those have been some really cool projects too. The dam removals in the Northeast, really, really exciting to see that once the dams were removed, just how impressively quickly and in ways that nobody really expected fluvial plains to return and all the really cool stuff that happens. Like, do you, do you get to go back to places that you've worked at and, and look at them years later and just beam with pride or were there questions like, wow, I didn't think that was going to happen? Oh, yeah. No, we definitely go back and, and, and see the work that we've done. And an interesting story from just this last season, um, the dam that we took out on Gales Creek um, near Forest Grove, Oregon, um, you know, it was a hot day and and uh, we ended up taking a, a swim in the plunge pool of the dam, you know, before we got to the removal portion. And um, there was just a ton of fish that were trying to jump over that dam and, you know, to get down on their level and just watch them sort of jump up, hit the dam and fall back down and just do it over and over again. I think that's a really good example of, you know, a week later, the dam was out and we rewatered re re the dam the uh, river through there and now all those fish can get by they just physically couldn't do it before so it's kind of fun to like get down on their level cool off and, and see that it could just be something that the the layperson can't see they might just see what they consider a creek but it's actually yeah. something that's been straightened by agriculture or some other reason um have you worked on projects like that and and what are they like Sure, that's 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 a real common one where um, you know a creek was straightened um, to make room for agriculture or some other use, and then we go back and restore the creek to its original alignment and fill the existing creek in. And you know, there's a lot of benefits to those. Like when they when somebody straightened a creek, um, a lot of times the water table it will erode down, cut down, and the water table will drop with it. So a big field that used to be wet is no longer wet anymore, which, um, you know, the farmer accomplished what they wanted. But um, restoring that creek and filling that in brings the water table back up and re-wets, you know, huge areas and stuff. So that's a, that's a pretty, um, pretty significant impact with not a lot of, uh, you know, diesel power to do it. Have you ever worked on uh, beavers? Yeah. Experimenting you know, that, with like fake beaver or human made 
dams? Yeah, um, we have seen that. Um, you know, people refer to them as like a beaver dam analog. And, um, you know, it's interesting because I've been doing this for 20 plus years now. And um, as, a, as an industry, we've evolved from like, sort of like the beaver was the enemy of like, oh my God, mm. we did this restoration. We planted all these plants and the beaver came by and ate them all. And now we have to start over to now we're sort of like planning to have them come in and do their thing and not being upset when they do <laughs> come in and choose some of the plants that were put in and, and build their dams and stuff. But, but um, yeah, we have seen some of the beaver dam analog um, work and I mean, mixed results, I guess. Um, you know, it just, it just depends on a lot of different factors. I think a lot of the aspect of, of the beaver dam too, is that they're constantly maintaining them, you know, every mm. night. <laughs> and we want to go home at night. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we want to be done with it. The, the, there's no more money left. Everybody go home and then, you know, wonder why it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. What are some other examples where, you know, you guys are trying to do the work uh, as we've figured out nature to the best of our ability, how nature did it, does it, where you're just like, this is as good as we can do, but man, I don't know what we, if we had to finish this process, I don't know what we would do. Yeah, I, I think you really have to sort of, carp, you know, be willing to do some adaptive management and, you know, do what you can and, and be willing to come back. And, and make some adjustments based on, you know, what happened. Our industry has sort of been evolving um, over, over the time that I've been involved in it. Like I've, I've been able to witness like the evolution of habitat designs. And, you know, 20 some years ago, if somebody was going to put a log jam in, then, then gosh darn it, that log jam better be there forever. And it better be locked in and, and, um, you know, bolted down and, and not be able to move. And um, we're sort of evolving into a little bit more of um, not, not relying so much on that and allowing things to, to evolve and regenerate. And that might include that, uh, that log jam moving a little bit. And it's not the end of the world like it, like it once was. How many more biohabitats could there be? Just, let's just leave it in North America. How many? Oh man. I mean, I mean, of course, I think that there, there's not enough going on, you know, that there's there's way more we can do. And, you know, I, I have a hard time looking at a stream or a wetland or a river and not finding something that could be adjusted in it to make it function better. <laughs> you know, yeah, like the impacts that we see around us every day are so great um, that there, there's always going to be work to do. And I think that the industry as a whole, what one of the things I really like about it is that the people that I work with and the people that we work for and that are on our team, like everybody wants to be in this industry. You know, we've chosen this career path um, because we believe in it and, and we want to we want to restore the ecosystems in, in, in the little minute ways that we can, wherever we can help. But like, you know, everybody chose to be here and we could mm. probably make more money uh, doing something else that maybe has a negative impact on the planet, but we, we choose to be here and we want to make a difference. And I think that like, that's sort of the attitude across the board, whether it's one of our clients or team members or subcontractors or, you know, anything. So that, that, that really makes it easy to get out of bed and, and do, do the work. From what I've learned from talking to you guys over the years, it's, you are action oriented. You really are the, the type of people who 
need to go do something about that. That's exactly thing. right, Jack. And and I think like one of the things I learned early on was that for my career path, I didn't want to just have a desk job where I just checked in on a computer every day and worked on something that that in my opinion didn't really matter that much. And I wanted to be outdoors, you know, and I wanted to, um, I didn't want to be I didn't want to just leave reports that sit on the wall, you know, like written reports. I love the fact that like we're leaving a legacy as we move from site to site and do this work. Like when we go take a dam out, nobody's ever going to put a dam back in that same spot. There is something to, you know, the art of the hard work, you know, the dirt under the fingernails and like being able to leave that legacy, but like physically change things that you feel like after we're long gone are still going to be regenerating, you know, and evolving in the right direction. And I just think there's people like you that can't live without that. You have to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, a a tip of the cap to all of those folks, you know, we need them, you know, none of almost none of the projects we're doing would happen without like that aspect of, of the system, you know, um, we, we need the, the, that nudge to get things going. And, and like I tell like our heavy equipment operators and our crews, when we get to these projects and we're about to start them, that you know, we all have to realize that the planning for this project started four, five, six years ago. You know, it, yeah. it started with the activism part, you know, the activism um, um, spectrum, bringing this issue up to the, you know, the people that can take care of it, you know, and the, the design engineering and the permitting and like, you know, by the time we get there with, with an excavator, there's been so much work from so many different people that, that made it happen. You know, we're like the last, the last bit. We are now in the beginning of what the United Nations has declared to be the decade on ecosystem restoration. And this episode of the Rewilding Earth podcast is sponsored by Biohabitats, a company dedicated to protecting and restoring ecosystems. Biohabitats would like you to enjoy a virtual moment along a restored section of Gales Creek, a tributary to Tualatin River that is used by many fish species, including federally listed Upper Willamette River Winter Steelhead and Chinook. To learn more about the restoration of Gales, be sure to check out the link in extra credit. What do you think about when you think about uh, taking that first dig into the side of a straight stream that you're getting ready to rewild or, you know, or get started on the rewilding path? You know, taking that first bite of dirt um, and getting a job started is it's, it's always, it's always super exciting. And, you know, the one, the one part of our projects that most people like to see is like when we would finish the project and rewater the new stream or, you know, put the stream back to where the dam was and and watch the water sort of, you know, fill back in. Like everybody loves being there for that. That's like toward the end of the Yeah. Day. Yeah. At the beginning of the job, we're a little more stressed out. Like <laughs> the work that we do out here, Jack, in the Northwest, we have a very limited in-water work window to do a lot of the heavy excavation work. Um, depending on the, the river, sometimes it's only July 15th to August 31st. So six weeks on a lot of these tributaries of the Willamette. And so at the beginning of the job, we're pretty stressed out about, you know, mm-hmm. getting ahead of it. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, who do who do you work for? Who who are the people? Is it state? Is it federal? Is it private companies? Is it a, a, a utilities? Is it a combination of all of those things? Um, it's a, it's a combination of all those things. I would say mostly it's um, you know utilities or nonprofits that get grant funding um, to pull these projects off. So like local watershed councils, you know, there's groups here like the. Um, Columbia River Estuary Study Task Force, and then our local government entities like Metro and Clean Water Services and, and, and organizations like that. These kinds of things are not cheap, I would imagine. And it's always cheaper to protect an area before it gets <laughs> messed up. Like you said earlier, it takes probably yeah. the same amount of resources to fix as it, is it took to destroy it. Where does this go? Lessons are going to have to be learned. People are going to complain about the price to do restoration um on on scale at real big scales that we dream of uh and they'll have to be reminded of what you said well it's going to take what it took to destroy it or even more a lot of the clients that we do work for um they do a really good job with the the messaging um of why we're investing in this work and how important it is and i think that um Locally around here, we don't get a lot of pushback, you know, public agencies investing in, into restoration work, um, but there, there is some. But I think, you know, our, our clients do a really good job of communicating um, the importance of this work. Wondering when you're going to get the call for Glen Canyon Dam. I want to be there for that. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, you know, they're, they're going to be starting the Klamath Dams this year. So right, I'm, right. Curious to watch, you know, how, how all that goes down for sure. That's, that's I mean, t- in terms of scale, describe that to people. That's a series of dams, not just one dam. They're, they're removing four, four large dams on the Klamath in um, Southern Oregon and California. And it's, it's, I think it's the biggest river restoration project in the United States. It's not just taking the concrete out of the middle of the river. It's a whole bunch of other stuff. It's, I, I was surprised in the time-lapse videos of the projects that I've seen before, how much time is spent after that river is freely flowing mm-hmm. on just getting the banks back to work and getting yeah. everything just kind of and replanted. I, I expected the video to end far sooner than it did, but you guys hang out for quite a while afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the revegetation of those areas is a, is a big part of the, um, the whole overall system with stability and habitat for sure. In your career, what's been your favorite, most fulfilling project, if you could just pick one? Oh, wow. Um, that's a <laughs> tough one, Jack. I I, I really like, um, we've done some projects on the lower Columbia River, where um, we're restoring the floodplain by removing or, or breaching um, levees. And so we'll do some work like behind the levee, uh, putting some channels in and some large wood habitat structures. And then the last thing you do is open that levee up. So when, you know, it's, it's so fun to watch that first high tide come in and flood these areas that, you know, haven't been flooded in, in you know, 100 years or so. And just to know that, um, you know, that's going to be like that for, for a long time to come. Yeah, um, Those are probably the, the most rewarding. And I think like, you know, the most rewarding ones are definitely the ones at scale. Um, so, you know, the larger the area, the bigger the ecological uplift, the more like proud of them we are, <laughs> you know. Have you worked on anything that has resulted in better connectivity for wildlife that has been necessary 
but you didn't work on anything ancillary to that. You were just working in one area and it turned out one of the biggest reasons for it was to improve. Well, you've, you've already described fish connectivity. Fish yeah, that's move, a big one. Move up and downstream. But were there any others that were like that for other critters? Well, I would say um, it's you know mostly mostly having to do with fish, you know, and, and most of the stuff that we've done out here. It seems like that is the um, that is the funding source is mm. improved fish passage and fish habitat because we have our listed uh, salmonids out here. I think I remember seeing something about a dam removal that resulted in better, well, better upstream feed for bears. Um, and sure. then forest recovering because the bears are taking those salmon back into the forest like they used to in their fertilizer and feeding other animals. And yeah, absolutely. Um, the uh, the food web exchange, you know, and, and that is that is one of the big bangs for the buck on something like a dam removal is is that, um, you know, you're assuming that all of the habitat upstream of the dam that the fish couldn't get to is 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 good. So you don't really have to do any work up there. They just need to get there. Yeah. The trees need their food back. The bears need their food back. I remember when I thought below dam bad, upstream good. That's as simple, I think, uh, of an understanding uh-huh. as most people have. But yep. because of work guys like you do and us mapping and checking out the results over the years, and we're still just babes in the wood here, aren't we? I mean, oh yeah, really only getting started. Yes. Yeah. We're, we're, we're applying some band-aids to some pretty heavy trauma. You guys are all over the country. I hadn't really, most of the discussion we've had with biohabitats people has been about East Eastern uh, work. And, and it's really neat to see that how dams are predominant everywhere, different Mm -hmm. kinds of dams. The dams over here are not necessarily the same as the dams in Mm -hmm. the Pacific Northwest, but there's also got to be a lot of differences. Yeah. And I think like Restoration design wise, I feel like we're in the process right now of like exporting a lot of the design elements that were um, that that began in the Northwest to other areas. So, you know, I work with my biohabitats colleagues on the East Coast as they try to incorporate more woody debris structures into their projects. You know, it's kind of old hat out here because historically our streams and rivers had a ton of wood in them and big wood. And so we've been sort of on that on that train out here for a while. And it we're sort of, you know, working on transitioning that element of, of habitat restoration, you know, using wood more into other bioregions. And it's been fun to sort of walk through that with my my coworkers. Are you talking about downed like logs and and or what yeah what so yeah so like um so like incorporating logs and woody debris into a restoration project for fish and aquatic wildlife habitat and bank stabilization and, and elements like that every project has to be a learning experience and people are learning all over the country like you're passing information that's more easily accessible to you because of the the situation you're in back east where they would take them longer to come up with what you're finding. And I'd say probably vice versa. Like, how do you guys, there must be a constant source of new things to to adjust in every single project. Well, Jack, see what we have. I have this red phone. See, when the red phone rings, (laughs) I have to immediately pick it up and say, root one. Yeah. (laughs) 
we we were just talking to the beavers over here and they said we're doing this wood thing all wrong we got to make some adjustments oh yeah we we joke around out here they're like you can't do a project out here without at least one root wad in the in the design and in the element somehow even if it's just like laying on the floodplain you know mm -hmm. you, you have to have that <laughs> Are kids uh, in college um, pursuing the same degree that you did or are similar degrees, are they going to be able to find their way to this kind of work or is there still work that needs to be done there to make them understand all of the possibilities after graduation? Well, um, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I get to use a word that I just learned yesterday, but you know, our, our industry is very transdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. So Every project is going to have biologists involved, engineers, um, botanists, fluvial geomorphologists, um, and then my end of it is, you know, equipment operators, laborers, you know, doing the work. So I think there is a, a ton of opportunities for younger people to get involved, and I and I and I believe that they are they are curious and will, you know, take take the torch here and carry it for sure. How do you describe it to yourself or to others? You know what we're doing here as more of an opportunity economically than a penalty. Cause it just feels like a lot of people look at the kind of work that you're doing is like, Oh, we got to go fix this area that got screwed up. We got to spend a whole bunch of money. Yeah. I think it's just our, our, our job to convince people that this is going to cost some money. Um, but at the same time, there's, you know, job creation and there's the overall long-term benefit that hopefully everybody can, can be on board with. Humans are horrible at thinking long-term. Yeah. And, you know, trying to evolve from like um, a species that's going to, you know, manifest destiny. We're going to control nature and, you know, wrench it into how we want it to act. Um, into the opposite of we're going to get out of the way and help it help it do its thing is that's it could take decades to shift that thinking. A lot of the dam removals that are happening now are due to the fact that like those dams are reaching the end of their like engineered design life span and you know trying to fix them or modify them is more expensive than just removing it. So I think so with low hanging fruit. Yeah, that's my understanding. You know, we're at kind of a turning point with a lot of this infrastructure where it's starting to, you know, get to the end of its life. And, you know, the people that own and run the dam are faced with either spending a bunch of money trying to fix it or just remove it and be done with it. I read an article the other day uh, on that complete other end of the spectrum where someone was touting a new dam project as an environmental alternative to fossil fuels. You know, it, and it's really weird to talk to you today, having read and read articles like that all the time from people who are really pro damn thinking, yeah. you know, we've learned this lesson. I, I don't know how we could better learn this lesson. <laughs> you know, uh, Yeah. I mean, if you put yourself in the fish's shoes and you get to the bottom of the Bonneville Dam and you look, you know, you look at that wall and, and that big, you know, waterfall coming out of it. And then you go over to your little fish ladder and you try to swim up that thing. I mean, it's it's a tough way to go. You've been at this long enough now to have some projects in your back pocket that your intervention has been so long ago that there would probably be some pretty surprising results by now. Do you have some examples of places you like to go visit and know that you took part in something really important there and you can hardly even maybe tell that anything was there? You probably can, but the yeah. layperson probably can't. 
Yeah, and I, I've lived in the same house for 20 years in the same the same neighborhood for even longer. And so it, you know, it's hard for me to drive like any direction away from Portland and not go past some some place that we worked on at some point. Wow. And um, yeah, I love doing that. And I mean, I think you were right though, you know, that the best, the best looking ones are the ones where it's totally grown back in and you can't even really tell what was going on there for sure. I think that um, we're always surprised by um, like the the, the, the natural revegetation of areas when you like reintroduce the um, hydrology to a system. Like there's a seed bank that has sat dormant there for, you know, a hundred years. And now all of the sudden, all of these wetland plants are growing there again, but you didn't really seed them or plant them. They were just there waiting for, the hydrology to come back and maybe a little disturbance to the soil and some sunlight, you know? And so that's always fun to see like the native recruitment of the vegetative like seed bank that just happens. Do you guys ever take people on tours that may be new to the company or, you know, if they're new to the company, they might just be an ecologist, but they don't know the part that you hired them for to be an ecologist with biohabitats. How do you get them up to speed with what it means to work for biohabitats? We generally just have people tag along with us for a summer and um, get get used to how we do things and stuff. So we we often look to hire an intern for the summer for our work to help us do things like turbidity monitoring or to learn um, how to do the erosion control daily reports and things like that, for sure. I might want to come do that. <laughs> we'll put you to work. Can you run machines? I know how to use a shovel. I can ride a motorcycle. Oh. It can't be any different. Okay. Yeah. Come on out. Put you to work. (laughs) Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and shedding light on the very, very important and crucial work that you guys do. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate being the invitation and thank you so much. Biohabitats is proud to sponsor this episode of the Rewilding Earth podcast. During the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration and always, Biohabitats applies the science of ecology to restore degraded ecosystems, conserve habitat, and regenerate the natural systems that sustain all life on Earth. Ecological restoration is positive action that you can take and support today. It's also incredibly rewarding and a lot of fun. Learn how you can get involved in the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration by exploring the links in extra credit. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.